And this is something that we're talking about yesterday, actually, this multitasking, the evening uh, or the afternoon meditation session and talk yesterday. Ajahn Damasiya was talking about multitasking and how often this, you know, it's, it's a term and it's an idea and it's something that you sort of do properly, but I think I have the same opinion. When you do that, actually you can disperse your energies or you can get things wrong and make mistakes when you're doing four or five, six things at the same time. This is why I much prefer the term monotasking. Next. I much prefer the term monotasking. And when I think about how the mind actually works, the flow of the mind, you, know, you can see how multitasking, you know, it's whatever the act or the task or whatever it is that you're directing your attention to, if your attention is dispersed or skipping from one thing to another, then the quality is going to go down. So to have this ability to give something one's undivided attention, this is more, I think, more in line with how meditation works too. So it's on the internal level, being able to give one's attention to something for some duration of time. Mindfulness it means the, the ability to recollect, to keep something in mind, to keep the mind's awareness on something, not just skipping from one thing to another, but to have this kind of monodirectional flow for at least some duration of time to be able to keep the awareness on something. For multitasking, it's more like skipping. There's this kind of monkey mind thing still going on and we're getting things done, but maybe the quality drops, we start making mistakes. It's like driving. How well can you drive if you've got a phone in your hand? It's already getting dangerous to entertain a conversation with someone, even if it's on hands-free. But the mind is getting more and more absorbed in the conversation. Accidents can happen. Basically, distraction is what's happening. The mind's getting distracted from its main task. So it's good to develop this ability to monotask, just to pay attention. So I notice with myself lately, I've been doing, having, doing a bit of writing and having the writing checked. And I can see when I'm going through my own writing later after it's been edited by someone else. Many of the mistakes, they could have actually been avoided or they would have been avoided uh, if the mind was just paying more attention to the words. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, the attention is darting, maybe from one paragraph to the other even. It's not looking at one thing continuously with unbroken awareness. Quite often the little glitches or the little blips you can trace them back to maybe a break in awareness. The more you pay attention to something and it's continuous attention, whether it's on the level of samatha, developing calm of mind, peace of mind, or it's on the level of reflection or even conceptual thought, just thinking something through clearly and, and being aware of what you want to say or what you want to write. Say, I'll give this example of writing being clearly aware of what you want to articulate and how you're articulating it uh, and getting those things in line with each other. Um, this is, you know, this is something which can be achieved uh, with a more continuous focus, which is more like monodirectional and is sustained on one thing. Of course, we don't want to strain the mind. We're not squeezing it into one little dot. 
sometimes this word for samadhi, one-pointedness, it can be quite misleading. That we kind of force the mind into these tiny little molds. It's not what it's about. It's just the ability to keep one's awareness maybe with one thing rather than many things dispersed or skipping around, darting from one thing to another. This is a continuous training and it's very useful in all aspects of life because our mindfulness and sampajanya, both these qualities, they are, you know, you can apply them internally and you can apply them externally and genuinely when, when you apply them, then the result that comes out from whatever it is that you're doing is going to be better because you're giving it uh, continuous and undivided attention. Though we do that with a meditation object, it's the breath, it's metta, it's a gathering of energy. The mind's energy has become more and more unified. This is what leads to unification of mind, singleness of mind. But when you're doing vipassana or contemplating something, a body part, mental events as they come and go, some aspect of the Dhamma, it's the same thing. It's the ability to keep one's awareness on something continually. It's sustained moment to moment. So it's not just awareness alone. Everyone has awareness. That awareness quite often is dispersed. It's going off in the wrong direction. It's going to something which is actually not going to be of any real use at that point in time. It's scattered. We've always got awareness because we're conscious beings. So as long as we're not asleep or we're not dead, we're not unconscious, then the awareness is there. But to train one's awareness, yeah, this is where awareness becomes mindfulness. So one thing we do in meditation, we can't just... Uh, sit down very few people can i think just sit down center their awareness say, on a meditation object which is quite refined like anapanasati or the breath and just keep it there with absolutely no distractions no other thoughts I mean, that's a mind which is already is already settled down to quite a deep level it's already very content very happy even very blissful in just to be centered internally. But of course, we don't start our meditation like that. For most of us, it takes quite a while actually to really calm the mind down. So when we first sit down to contemplate, this is where you'll see how what we do during the day, what we say, this is something which naturally kind of leaves an imprint on the mind. You know, these echoes that come later. Well, when Ajahn Chah was talking about it in a negative sense, he's looked like the backwash. What we've been doing, thinking, saying throughout the day. And if it's been unskillful and we know that it's been harmful in some way, we're letting the mind and letting the mouth stray into areas where it's indulging in anger or vengeance, worry and fear or doubt, just pointless proliferation, egotism. And then that's what starts to bubble up and the mind churns out those sorts of things when we come to sit down and meditate. 
if you want to sit down and meditate, internalize the mind and have a basic level of stability and calm there, already we have to look at what we're doing at other times at work. When we're going around the house, when we're interacting with people, you see that all these things, they leave this little mark or this little impression on the mind to kind of gather up through the day. So last night, you know, Ajahn Dhammasiya, he used his Pali term, which I quite like, Lankara. This, uh, I think, is it Jitta Lankara, the adornments of the mind? I think it was like Jitta Lankara, uh, these kind of adornments of the mind, you know, virtue. I guess you could extend it out to any good uh, form of behavior or act or deed or abstinence. We pull ourselves back from doing something unskillful. But if you compare the mind to a house, you know, this is our abiding place, which goes with us everywhere. You can adorn it or you can fill it uh, with mess. You could light a fire in it. You could vandalize it. But of course, then it becomes a very depressing, ugly place to be. Because the mind really is like this. It's our home. In a sense, it's always our home. It's where we are, wherever we go. Go to another country, go to China, go to Thailand, go to Russia. Still, what do you take with you? And what do you find in that place? You find yourself. Meaning you find your own state. And that's an accumulation of actions, of karma. Particularly when we sit down, we become aware of that. And if there's good things to be aware of, if there's good things that come up, happy things, beautiful things, wholesome things, things that brighten the mind and bring up a sense of cheerfulness, happiness, and that's what you see when you sit down to meditate. If not, then maybe we sit down and we just see dullness because there's a lack of merit, a lack of meritorious deeds, contributions, giving or as a lack of virtue, then of course these things are going to stir us up later, especially extreme forms of behavior, get into a fight, get into an argument, you sit down and meditate after that. These extreme moods coming from just a lack of stable, calm, and restrained behavior based on the precepts, you can really see how this affects one's meditation. So it's like a, a house, if someone was saying last night, some people, they don't want to go inside because they're afraid of what they'll see. And of course, that's true. It's not nice to sit down and look inside and see something you don't want to see. But this is why we have morality and virtue and why we have jaga, why we have dana, why we have these other things, these kind of base, basic qualities because they act as a support for the meditation. I think in... I think these days people are becoming more aware of it. Maybe when Buddhism first came to the West, the teachers that were bringing it were well aware of the fact that the people listening to them, they didn't really want to hear about virtue or morality or precepts uh, or anything that basically puts a limit on one's behavior. So it wasn't the emphasis. You can see that trend. There's not a whole lot of talk in the early days of Western Buddhism about precepts and you know, people were saying things like we've been traumatized by morality. This idea that if you don't stay within the confines of certain commandments or religious rules, 
then you know, you're going to go to hell when you die. It's not a very joyful way to uh, practice morality. It's about the attitude we take to it. Really what it's doing is kind of cleaning the house, cleaning out this space, which has got a bit of, still got a bit of rubbish lying around in it. Maybe it's a bit smelly. Hasn't been vacuumed, hasn't, hasn't been cleaned. You think dust has been gathering. Maybe even just if it's slowly, subtly, bit by bit. But any of those forms of behavior which cause a kind of stink in the mind, like a burning fire in the middle of your house and all the smoke coming out. It looks like an abandoned wreck, you know, a deserted house, the kind of teenagers would love to sit around and drink beer in. You don't want that to happen to your heart. You want it to be a place which is nice and clean, orderly, comfortable, fragrant, a nice place to be, basically, a nice abiding place. And but what leads up to that, all the causal factors in you know, the behavioral, it's not just a matter of sitting down and meditating half an hour a day. And that's a magic bullet. It's going to fix all the problems. You know, the path is a very complete one. So it is one that involves virtue. I find it interesting actually that the Thai word for art is silaba. Silaba. Interestingly, the Thai word for sila actually is sin. So <laughs> sin, we know it means actually the opposite of morality in English and in Christian context, but that's the shortened version of sila in Pali. The word for art actually is sila bat, or an artist is sila bin. And when you think about it, it's an interesting, whether it's deliberate or not, or whether it is a, perhaps a connection there in the language back to Pali, which there is a lot of the time in Thai. But anyways, you think about it, everything we do during the day, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, it's kind of like a little stroke on a piece of paper. And it leaves a little mark. And it's not necessarily an ugly mark or a particularly beautiful one, but you can see for yourself which ones are ugly, which ones are kind of neutral in the middle somewhere, which ones are particularly beautiful, stand out, particularly happy memories, things which leave a uh, brightening impression on the mind. We can observe this for ourselves internally. It's like there's a stroke on the paper. Every time we do something, say something, even an accumulation of thought, if it's continuous enough, these things leave an impression, like a little mark, a little ink blotch or a little scruple with a pencil on a piece of paper. And of course, if it's from a master, someone who understands how this process works, the process works, you sit down at the end of the day and they review themselves and they review what happened during the day from the time they woke up to the time that they sat down to meditate. And what they see is like a masterpiece. It's beautiful. You can sit back and admire just your own day, that there's an absence of ugliness. At least if there's nothing particularly amazing or beautiful, but there is this certain baseline of normality at least or peace, just as an absence of ugliness. But even better than that, you know, if you've uh, been active in a good way, made contributions, little, grand, whatever they were, done good deeds, acts of sacrifice, 
what we call chaga, giving things away, kind words, wise words, wholesome, uplifting conversations which lead to more insight, all these things, they're gathering and accumulating just like marks on a page, one stroke of paint after the other. You want to sit down at the end of the day and look at something which is beautiful. You're sitting in a house which is clean on a soft surface which is stable and you're admiring something in front of you which is beautiful. You want that. You don't want to sit down on a hard, dirty surface with a bonfire in front of us. And that's why all the past factors, they go together. Sila, Samadhi and Banya, they're mutually supportive. So we don't keep precepts or practice morality just out of fear or out of a sense of obligation. We should gradually, over the weeks and the months and the years, be seeing how our behaviour affects the mind and can either become supportive conditions, fertile soil for the growth of Samadhi and the development of Vipassana, and just generally brightness of mind, happiness of mind, or it can become very hard, salty turf and terrain where it's very difficult to meditate. It becomes like an uncomfortable dwelling place. We don't even want to meditate. We don't want to sit down and look internally because we're worried about what we'll see. So it's not about a guilt trip. This is just about cause and effect. And we have to be honest with ourselves important part of the path is this honesty. You can see the teachings of the Buddha hold truth in very high regard. There's one time when the Buddha was in having a uh, conversation with a certain man and the Buddha says to him from the outset, I'll only talk with you if you take truth as a basis for our conversation. So honesty and truth, this quality of satya is something that we honour when you think about this one on the level of virtue. Just if we're being dishonest to someone, taking the easy way out, maybe told a white lie, being dishonest about something even quite significant, then you have to deal with the worry that they're going to find out about that or in the long term that they're not going to trust you anymore but also on the deeper levels of you know, the Dharma itself, the kind of Dharma that releases the mind from suffering. These four noble truths, yeah. through the Arya, Satcha Dhamma. Truth is important in Buddhism. It's something that we honour. You see this as a translator particularly or as an interpreter where we translate or we interpret maybe something from the language of the Sutta Pitaka in, from Pali into English or from Thai into English. This is a quality that every interpreter has to have. They have to have this kind of honesty and ability to stick to what the words are saying, maybe not what we want them to say, our preconceived notions or our personal biases or our feelings you're taking the words of someone else and putting them into your own language, whether it's the Buddha or interpreting the Buddha's words or interpreting Ajahn Chah's words or whatever it is, conveying a message from one person to another. 
you know, we have to honor what the original speaker, what the original author meant and what they wanted it to mean, not what we want it to mean. You hear this a lot these days and people talk about, it's all about interpretation. You hear this particularly in the context of uh, spirituality because it's such a subtle thing. It can become a very kind of misty and vague thing. Well, it depends on how you interpret it as if any interpretation or every interpretation is going to be valid. Of course, if you're being honest, when we read into something, um, there's only that much room for interpretation. And sometimes the interpretations go beyond the scope of what would be an alternative but valid interpretation. There's one time with the Buddha, he gave a very short teaching and it was one of those concise ones. It's a little bit enigmatic. So later on, a group of his disciples were discussing the various meanings. There were six uh, of these students standing around talking about their various interpretations of what the Buddha had said earlier on in his life. This is one out of the Sutta Nipada. The conversation between the disciples is in the Anguttara. This earlier verse spoke in the Sutta Nipada and they're discussing about it later on. And they all have their own interpretation. And they go to the Buddha and they ask him, you know, what, what did it actually mean? And so the Buddha says to them, yeah, well, all of you have spoken uh, accurately in your own way. Or you've all given it, you'd say, a valid interpretation. But then the Buddha goes into what he actually meant when he was saying it. So he had his own specific meaning. But he was not closing it right there. He said their interpretations were all okay. They were all in line with the Dhamma generally. They were valid. He had his own specific one, which you could say is more accurate because that's the one he had in mind. So there is room for interpretation. But at the same time, there were sometimes gross misrepresentations of the Buddha's words. Someone totally misunderstood him and he would tell them that. He'd say, you know, you're misrepresenting me. You know, this is not good to misrepresent the Tathagata. So there is room for interpretation in life generally and even in the Dhamma. But we shouldn't use it as an excuse just to read into anything anyway, as if anything could mean anything. It just depends on your interpretation. The interpretation could be your own and it's your right to have it, but it doesn't mean it's valid. It doesn't mean it's necessarily accurate. It doesn't mean it's necessarily coming from a place of complete honesty. So this is a strength of the mind honesty generally on the level of virtue and the level of how we study, how we read into the Dhamma, how we practice before we just come up with our own personal spin on things. It's good to try and understand it from someone else's perspective. The original speaker or the original author, this is about truth. We honor truth and take honesty as a basis for the way we interact with other people our own words and their words. But it's not just about truths. This is something that's been on my mind lately. There's all sorts of truths out there. There's all sorts of ideas. Now I've got the internet. It's an ocean of different facts, bits of information, stories. And you don't know how much of it is fact, actually. 
but people say that this is a valid argument and that's also a valid argument and this is that person's opinion you know well it's probably true and you think about the teachings of our tradition the buddha called them noble truths so there's something else there it's not just about truth or just about you know it's not like the four interesting facts or the four intriguing facts or arguments or the four valid arguments you call them noble truths there's just something else going on there they're not just truths like random truths interesting truths the buddha called them aria such a dhamma so these truths they're noble because they lead to the end of suffering they're not just any truths So our practice is one of recognizing what leads to the end of suffering. In other words, you know, what is utter dhamma leads you to the goal, to the highest bliss, you know, the highest happiness. You don't just get stuck on valid arguments or trying to pin down facts and sort of get lost in this ocean of facts. What we keep coming back to as a center of gravity in the dhamma is these particular truths that are aimed at releasing the mind from suffering. They're particularly conducive, leading in that direction. And the Buddha had that, because you can see it's the underlying structure of the Four Noble Truths, but it's also on the level of virtue when we speak, we speak what is also truthful, what is also beneficial. It's just good to remind ourselves of this because there's so much information out there now. And it's at our fingertips. On every gadget in everyone's pocket, iPhones, tablets, it's everywhere. It's ocean of information, views and opinions everywhere. It's good to remember why we call these ones just noble, not just truths, but they're Aryan, noble. So spoken for a little while now. Does anyone do anyone have any questions they want to ask? I think this was actually supposed to be a question and answer session. Anything I've said which doesn't make sense or has sparked off a doubt you want to be filled in on that? Does Yishan have any questions? <laughs> I didn't get to all of them in the last session because attention was absorbed with the people who are actually here. She does. No, no, she doesn't. <laughs> okay. So if anyone, uh, if there are no further questions, maybe we can leave it there for this afternoon and appreciate everyone tuning in to hear the Dhammacast. I hope you got something out of it. Oh, sorry. Conclusions.
Okay, someone's got a question here. Conclusions you come to in Vipassana by feeling it as the truth, is it reliable? Um, it depends, I would say. It depends on what those conclusions are. <laughs> There's many different conclusions you could come to. But, okay, on one level, so if it's something that happens in your meditation on a subjective level, you can know that it's true, yeah, through your own experience, and that's the important part of the Dhamma is, you know, we allay our doubts by coming back to what we've experienced directly from ourselves, so it is um, reliable. But at the same time, you know, uh, we have this teaching to the Kalamas, which is very good with the Buddha. He, he doesn't just say, know something, um, know for yourself. He also says also, it's based on the words of wise people, which is also reliable. So we might come to a conclusion. I don't know. The question is very general, so um, I have to speak kind of generally. But whatever the conclusion is, good to run it by a teacher you know, someone who's experienced in the practice, which is an Ajahn, you know, or um, who you feel is a reliable guide on the path, and you kind of check it by them. You know, you can you can tell someone about your experience and see what they say. So it's kind of both, yeah. Internal factor, external factor. With your Yoni So Manasikara kind of wise attention or appropriate attention on the inside and you've also got your Kalyana Mitta, so spiritual friends and hopefully they're reliable spiritual friends to kind of bounce ideas off on the external level. Ajahn, when taking eight precepts, can... We have our last meal after 1 p.m. instead of before noon. <laughs> it's not possible when you work in the morning till noon. Yeah, I had the same problem when I was in high school, actually, because I was preparing myself to come to the monastery. And so I was wanting to keep eight precepts uh, at, at home and during the school week. But, you know, our lunch break was at like 12. 12.30 p.m. So uh, it's, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, I mean, say for monks in the Vinaya, uh, we take midday uh, as our standard of uh, the time when we stop eating. But you might have to make a little adjustment there. But also this is why we have different times for different things. They're like, if it's getting too hard to do that, I mean, when you're working you're in a different context, which isn't so supportive of the eight precepts. So it might be better to just keep five at that time. I would recommend and maybe keep the eight precepts for days when you're, you know, it's just more feasible. You're not as busy or it's a day off like a Saturday or a Sunday. And so then you don't have this kind of internal conflict where you're having to resolve. I want to do this, but I can't. It's, it's okay to relax the standards of, um, these eight precepts when uh, you're at work, you know, it's a work day, so it's going to be too difficult to keep it. 
or if you really want to, you just have to accept it. You have to make a little adjustment there. <laughs> you have to wait and you have to, what is it? Uh, okay. I would say generally to that question, probably no, because it's kind of, it's the whole point of it is that after, after midday, you want all that time free and you don't want to have to worry about food. You don't have to worry about seeking it, cooking it, preparing it, buying it. What are you going to buy? How much does it cost? It's kind of the whole point of that is going to clearing the whole issue from the mind. You just don't have to worry about food mentally. You're not thinking about it or seeking it, involved with it. So you're kind of hollowing out more space in the mind just to direct to meditation or to study. But also, but also, you know, like physically, you know, you don't have to experience the kind of, you know, the sloth and torpor, the kind of the heaviness of the body as it digests food. So, so I don't, you know, the later on you go back in the day eating that, eating that meal, it sort of starts to take away from the point of keeping that standard to begin with. In Thailand, you eat your meal at like 8.30 in the morning and that's it for the day. And, you know, surprisingly, that's actually quite feasible if you get used to it. But, I mean, this is from the perspective of a monk who's been keeping that habit for many years, gotten used to it. You eat 8.30, you're full, and that takes care of you for the rest of the day and you're happy. So you don't really need to worry about compensating if this is what it is by eating late that, that meal as late as possible. I just have a sense of time and place. You know, this is also wisdom. We apply wisdom to our precepts. The Buddha called this one Galanyuta, so an awareness or a knowing of time, meaning, you know, the appropriate time or the appropriate occasion for something, a particular, uh, a particular practice, just knowing the right time, the right place. Don't be disappointed if it's if you can't do it when you like to do it. It's not wrong. It's just having an awareness of time and place. It's hard to find people that just keep the five. <laughs> I'm very impressed. If I if I know a lay person and they honestly keep the five precepts all the time, if they keep the eight precepts sometime, well, it's even more impressive, but. Uh, just to keep the five properly and to really be using them, you know, not as a way of getting up on a high moral pedal still and um, comparing your purity with your friends around you, but just really using them in a very honest and sincere way uh, to, to support one's Dhamma practice. That's the five, and it's already an accomplishment. And it's pretty impressive as far as I'm concerned.